Mazur talks about his first experience with organized crime. And uh, so one of the old timers says to me, how'd you get the job, kid? And I said, well, um, my grandfather used to work here years back and my mom knows some of his friends. And he goes, well, really, who's your grandfather? Now, Italian-Americans on Staten Island who live in that circle have nicknames. And um, so he was Two Beers, uh, Two Beers Safaro. So uh, I said, well, Two Beers Safaro, you'd have thought I'd mentioned George Washington. And um, <laughs> a couple of weeks later, after they verified my story, the, the uh, president of the union came over and he said, uh, kid, you're not going to shape up today with the carpenters. Um, you just need to come to this building in the middle of the, it was affectionately called a shithouse in the middle of, of the, the dry dock is where the bathroom was. And he goes, you just need to hang out here. You know, you know who works here now. And anybody who looks like a cop or anybody coming around, you just bang on the side of the door. I had no idea why. Um, I come to find out the bookies taking numbers in the morning <laughs> and I had to figure out a way to get out of that. Cause my mom, um, was adamant that I would have nothing to do with that world. Welcome to game of crimes. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, everybody, to Game of Crimes. I am Morgan Wright. I'm the one who actually can see right now because I just didn't have cataract <laughs> surgery. Murph is in witness protection, and I can't see him. So, and here I'm here with my partner in crime and low light. I'd be one eye, one eye, Murph. <laughs> but I'm here. That's the main thing. One eyed Murph. One eyed right. Arg. It's like one eyed Jack, but one eyed Murph. One-eyed Murph. Uh, that's a, so, hey, anyway, guys, welcome back. This is the next installment of your bi, uh, twice a week. I was going to say it's not bi-weekly, but it's a twice a week podcast, The Game of Crimes. There you go. And Yeah. Hey, and I'll tell you what. We got an awful lot of comments about Christy and the dogs and the <laughs> yeah. porn dog. Porn dog. <laughs> porn dog. <laughs> And if you haven't seen it yet, she sent us a picture. So if you haven't listened to part two, listen to part two, and you will get the joke about when she tells James Comey, I hope you didn't vote for Hillary. We actually have a picture basically of that exact <laughs> moment happening at FBI headquarters. She's such a hoot, man. She's one of the best people we've had on the podcast so far. And, you know, just once again, love the fact that, uh, you know, she didn't let a, a horrific event change her life, still steps up and she sees a need and she doesn't hesitate. She steps up and addresses the need. So. Very, very proud of you there, Christy. Way to go. Way to go. So if you guys haven't checked it out, go back, check episode 43, Christy Schiller and what she does with canines for cops and canines for kids. And by the way, some of you are asking, we'd love to hear stories from the handlers. We got those lined up. We got our first one recorded. We've got a few more. So we're going to be spreading those out. We'll be doing a series uh, over the spring and the summer, bringing you stories of canines for cops and what they're doing. So everybody hang tight. But by the way, speaking of hanging tight, hang tight and just head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars, single stars. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Drop some comments. You know, just anything. Just let us know. Heartbeat. Just check. We're, we're just making sure you're live out there. Also, head on over to our website like I do with Murph. You know, once a day, I have to send him a message. You know, Murph, reply back if you're still with me. I got to know if I'm going to be, you're going to be around to record the next episode. I'm here, brother. Yeah, that's why we didn't let you drive after you had your cataract surgery. You can <laughs> They're not going to let me. Every time I get these eye drops in, I, it impairs your driving. So it's going to be a few days. 
which is hard to tell in Florida whether it's impaired driving or just eye drops. So that's right. I, f- I fit right in here now. How you about fit that? right in, man. Well, <laughs> but, but speaking of fitting right in, fit right in and head on over to our website, Game of Crimes Podcast. Dot com. And by the way, it's going to be important because when we talk about our next guest, he's got a couple books that are going to make the list now. So you got to go there. Everything that we're doing there, follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, Murph, you got to be at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes because we have got just did our last installment of 911. What's your emergency? I think we're going to do another one. People really like that you just can't make this shit up. So we're going to do a whole nother <laughs> series of those things. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we still get some hate mail. I got some hate mail in today from where Javier and I went up to Chicago to speak up there at the city winery. Yeah. Just, you know, people just, uh, I, I wrote out a, a response and then I let it die and we'll see what happens. You know what we're going to do is like they do on TV. Somebody like Jimmy Kimmel or somebody does mean tweets. We're going to do mean tweets, mean messages. We're just going to have a segment on just messages we've received from people. Cause I got a couple, there's, um, believe it or not, there's a couple of people out there find me annoying. I, I don't understand why, but hmm. anyway. I, well, I didn't think I signed my name to that, did I? <laughs> no, it was because it was spelled correctly. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but just head on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We do, I mean, we got closing in on 90 pieces of content. We got our Q&A coming out uh, very quickly. Uh, we got to figure out what we're going to do for our live stream review this month. I got a got a good idea from somebody. Uh, she goes by Letty. Um and she said she really liked Mark Wahlberg's uh, movie, The Shooter. And I'm thinking, you know what? Mark's done Patriots Day. He's done The Shooter. You know, he's done a couple. I think we might make this Mark Wahlberg month. You know what? He, su- he supports um, – DEA has a program uh, working with kids, and he comes out and supports it. They have uh, high school te- students coming to these coliseums up in the northeast around New Hampshire and up that way. They'll have 10,000, 12,000 high school students come in to see Mark Wahlberg. So, you know, he had a, he had a rough beginning – in his uh, entertainment career, but he's gotten straightened out. Just very proud of what that young man's doing. Well, and plus he was, uh, uh, when we talked with Ed Davis on the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, uh, he actually knows Mark, been out to visit him. So I think we'll do Mark. I think that's, we just made a decision. We'll just do Mark Wahlberg month. So we'll come up with three movies of his and do that. And by the way, while you're doing that, uh, just head on also over to uh, paypal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. But again, as with all shows and as with all disclaimers, I don't know why we have disclaimers. People know it's explicit. We talk about crime. But anyway, just in case this is, if this is your first time listening, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but you can already tell we never take ourselves serious. And that's what makes this so much fun. You're going to hear the real stories, but we're going to have some fun telling them. Violation of federal law to take ourselves seriously, titled uh, you know twenty one United States Code section X forty seven, whatever that one is. Cha cha cha, cha cha cha. Anyway, but hey, before we really get into all the good stuff, it is that time, and you know what time it is. So guess what time it is. It's time for small, small town, town police, police blotters. Yeah, Murph can't see what small town police blotter is. Murph, Murph is going to make small town police blotter if he tries to drive this afternoon. But anyway. I have to close our, one eye here when we look. Yeah. Our first one actually comes from Leanne Banville Colville off of our Game of Crimes fan group. She mm-hmm. sends this story, and I thought it was appropriate because we have Easter coming up. Mm-hmm. But what we also just recently had, too, was April Fool's. So you're thinking, how do those things mix? Well, here's how they mix. 
a store clerk in Brandon. Now, this is in Canada, eh, where all the people are nice, so I'm surprised there's crime in Canada, eh? So this happened in Manitoba, Canada, in a town called Brandon. Brandon police say that a suspect entered a business and attempted to steal merchandise during the ordeal. An employee confronted the 27-year-old man but was struck with a Mr. Solid chocolate bunning causing minor injuries. Aww. That has got to be one big piece of chocolate to cause minor injuries. Oh, yeah, that's a felony to destroy chocolate. I don't care what part of the world you're in. Oh, man. He fled. He was arrested in possession of the stolen items. He was released uh, to appear in court on charges of assault and theft under $5,000. However, though, in a news release, Brandon Police clarified the incident was not an April Fool's joke. People thought it was an April Fool's joke because it was reported on April 1st. The chief said, while the weapon of choice in this case may be atypical of what a suspect would normally use, I have never worked a case where a solid chocolate bunny was the object, was the tool of the assault. Well, you know, there's some weight behind that thing if it's a solid chocolate. I didn't even know you could get solid chocolate bunnies anymore. But you know what? I bet after he assaulted the guy, he apologized to him. Yeah. <laughs> but, hey, sorry for doing that. And I'm sorry to the bunny as well, eh? Yeah. Hey? Yep. <laughs> hey, Steve, well, we've all heard the next one here. We've all we've all heard, right, uh, sometimes, and you, I remember working cases where we would monitor, like, the funeral of a homicide or whatever else, because sometimes the, the suspect would return to the scene of the crime, especially, like, on fires and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. How long would you say normally you should wait before you return to the scene of the crime? Yeah, like never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This guy didn't get your memo. So a bumbling California bank robber didn't even wait a day before he came back to the branch he knocked over the day before. Samuel Brown was busted after he tried to rob the same Fountain Valley Chase Bank two days in a row. The San Diego resident took off with a large amount of cash after he slipped a stick-up note to a teller at the New Hope Street Chase at 3 p.m. on Monday. But that wasn't enough for him because the next morning at 11, he returned again and tried to rob the bank, and this time, the cops were ready for him. <laughs> what a moron. <laughs> and you know what's really surprising, Steve? Uh, Brown had an outstanding arrest warrant and a rap sheet that included, guess what, previous robbery convictions. At the same bank? No. But doesn't say. <laughs> doesn't matter. You know, this, this guy, apparently, kids, don't do meth. What do we tell you all the time? Don't do meth. Hey, just say no to crack, you know? Just say no what? to crack. I mean, how many times does this guy get busted, needs to get busted before he realizes, ah, probably I need to find a better occupation here. Well, I don't work. What well, Steve, wants? speaking of crack. Uh-oh. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought that up. There was a time in Louisiana not too long ago where a man was arrested and they searched him. And guess where they found the weapon? Uh, You're already guessing it. Oh, Justin yeah. Savoie pleaded guilty Friday to weapons charges after police in the town of Golden Meadow, Louisiana, population 1,761. Salute. Who were arresting him last year on a separate matter discovered he has stashed a loaded 25 caliber Titan pistol in his buttocks. Oh. Police had taken him into custody after they responded to suspicious activity. Cops say they discovered him possessing a handgun, marijuana, and drug paraphernalia during an initial search. Other firearms were discovered in his truck at the scene. But as Sav but what happened was he was arrested, taken to the jail, and as he was being strip searched, which is normal protocol, mm -hmm. you get arrested for something like that, they found the additional surprise weapon concealed in his rear end. You know what you say to that? What an ass. What an ass. <laughs> Well, Steve, the pistol is more than four inches long with a two and a half inch barrel, which apparently was more than what he was packing. So, uh, <laughs> <part> <laughs> but Steve, this is the this is the word part as part of the terms of his probation. 
He's barred from owning or possessing firearms, got that, visiting bars or lounges, got that, or indulging in excessive use of alcohol or uh, illegal drugs. <laughs> what a piece People, of you need to write. There needs to be a comment in there. I wonder if, if there was a round in, in the. I wonder if there's a round in the chamber. <laughs> Let me get that thing out of there. Bam! Oh, one shot damn. wonder. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh jeez. Okay. Yeah, you know, just think when just there you go. You can't make a shit up. You can't make this shit up. And speaking of, you can't make this shit up. You can't make the shit up that our next guest did. And yeah. I, and I tell you what. This is so cool because you know him, Steve, mm -hmm. but I met him before I met him. And the way I met him was I was watching a movie one day, Brian Cranston, who starred in Breaking Bad, you know, became Walter White. But he starred as an agent who infiltrated the cartels and the money laundering operation specifically in a movie called The Infiltrator. And this is a dude you know by the name of Bob Mazur. Absolutely. And this is a guy who's a glutton for punishment because the infiltrator is about him infiltrating the Medellin cartel and bringing down the, was it BCCI Bank, one of the most corrupt banks that was ever created in the world. So he brought them down and then he didn't get enough of it. <laughs> he went after the Cali cartel and that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Holy cow. And what were you speaking of glutton for punishment? Um, he started off with the IRS speaking of a glutton for punishment. He was uh -huh. a glutton for punishment because he worked for three separate federal agencies, IRS, Customs, and then ended up at DEA. But man, what a story. He's got his books out. The, the Infiltrator is also a book. Uh, and it's the book that I had after I read. He sent me a copy. I read it. I had to call him and ask for explanations because it was so complex, the money laundering schemes, I couldn't understand them. And now you read about the new, you know, he's got a new book out, The Betrayal, and all this will be on our, our book site, everyone. So, you know, sponsor this guy and, and support him by getting his books. But this one, he talks about why he came to DEA and what one of his agencies did. He didn't complain about it on the interview here, but they just did everything but rape him. I mean, it's horrendous the way he was treated, the way the investigation had to be brought down. And you'll hear him talk a little bit about uh, having to go before Congress and the whole ball of wax. So... This is a really good story. Really good. It's really good, too, because he still stays in contact with Brian Cranston. He's got a new book called The Betrayal um, that's out along with The Infiltrator. And they are. The rights got bought to the book. And we'll talk more about that because we get famous people other than you and me. We get famous people and people who know famous people. Mm-hmm. So you know what? Murph. We got we got a new surprise coming up, too. And this I'm not going to mention the name, but it might be someone from the Narco series on Netflix. That's right. Ready to come on the show. Well, let's not jinx it. Let's wait till we get it recorded, then we'll tease it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't fuck it up now. <laughs> well, that's Murphy's Law. If anything yeah. can go wrong, it's going to. Don't worry. <laughs> well, before we get into that, then let's, before things can go wrong, then I need to ask you one question, Murph. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and funnest game of all, the Game of Crimes? Absolutely. Everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. This is a real adventure. You're going to see, see anyway, well, you're going to hear some stories you've never heard anywhere, anywhere before. Bring on our brother, Bob Mazur. People, this is going to be interesting because... This is going to sound like a weird introduction, but um, one of the people I read a lot is Dan Brown, you know, the Da Vinci Code Angels and Demons, and he teaches a master class. And he said, 
he was not going to watch Breaking Bad because he just didn't see anything of it. Friends convinced him to just watch the first five minutes. He watched the first five minutes. He says, I'm totally hooked. Now, what does that have to do with our next guest? Everything, because this next guy, our guest, and Brian Cranston, they kind of know each other. In fact, Brian played him in a movie. So let's welcome Bob Mazur to the podcast. Bob, welcome to Game of Crimes, buddy. Well, thanks for thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Good yeah, to have he, you on here, brother. You're wondering where that intro was going, right? I had everybody going like, what the hell is this dude talking about? But <laughs> Dan Brown, but it, we never know where you're going. Brother. I know. Our listeners are used to it. It's okay. But it was. But when you see the first five minutes of Breaking Bad and there's Walter White in his underwear and, his, you know, just everything's going to shit. And then, but, you know, before we even talked about this, Bob, before I even knew you, I had watched The Infiltrator a long time ago, um, you know, when uh, Brian, with Brian Cranston, you know, because of uh, Breaking Bad and stuff. And it's so it was so cool when Steve reached out to you and said, hey, let's talk about this. But before we talk about all that other stuff, we got to start like we normally do. We always ask people. What the hell possessed you to get into this profession called <laughs> law enforcement? So family, friends, uh, just a college dare, what was it? Uh, actually, it was by mistake. Uh, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was uh, a business administration finance major, uh, one credit away from a, a CPA certificate. And um, it was hard times and uh, looking for a job uh, to pick up some extra money for books and stuff. And I found this jobs board that had a, an invitation for candidates to, uh, be interviewed about a co-op position. So um, at the time, um, the agency that was offering this was called the IRS intelligence agency, which, uh, intelligence division, which is kind of an oxymoron, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is <laughs> that's the agency. So I went there and, um, you know, I wasn't going to get any heavy lifting. I mean, we're talking about you know, making coffee for the guys, photocopying and uh, running around <laughs> after them like a puppy after it's, it's, it's mom. Well, so, it's kind of uh, like being a trooper in Kansas, I think. Uh -huh. <laughs> real funny. By the way, a buddy, of, a buddy of mine used to work for the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, the IRS, but they would ask him, what do you do? He says, I work for a small nonprofit organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that really caught my attention, and, and this is in Manhattan, so they're working bigger cases. And uh, one of the groups, um, the organized crime group, was working on a case. Um, DEA was handling, of course, the and, and other agencies were handling the narcotic side of it, but we were handling the financial side of it. Uh, later, it became a movie, um, American Gangster, um, related to Frank Lucas. And we very cool. We, yeah, very cool. We were on the the money side, so um, that particular bank that was servicing him, aptly named Chemical Bank was uh, <laughs> was taking in duffel bags full of cash. And the organized crime group had been out there only six months or so before because some wise guy uh, was taking cash there and they weren't reporting the cash transaction. So uh, the surveillance has led to documenting the fact that the same officers were doing the same thing they'd done months before and um, and led to a prosecution of uh, the officers at uh, at Chemical Bank, but that grabbed my attention. Is like, man, if you follow the money, it takes you to command and control, and it really gets you to the heart of the criminal organizations. And from then on, it's like, do I want to count widgets as a CPA, or am I going <laughs> to do this? So I decided to do this. Got a quick question for you. When you said wise guys, did you mean it in the law enforcement way, like some uh, organized crime guys, or just some knuckleheads? Uh, organized crime guys, yeah. Yeah. What families were they, if you remember? 
Uh, I don't know which one of the five that it was that was going to that bank, but it was up in the Bronx and it was a chemical bank. So uh, I'm not sure whose territory that was. It's okay. You know, this thing of ours, you know, these guys, you know, but, but that was, you know, it's like, it's always great to, this has been one of our most interesting episodes too. When we talk about organized crime, people for some reason are fascinated. We had Dominic Polifron on, Steve Matelski. I, I didn't know there was organized crime in Canada. There was mafia in Canada. I thought they were all too nice. And then we're shocked to find out they're all over the place, but. So, but you, now where were you going to school at? Uh, a huge college called Wagner College on Staten Island. I think we had about 2,500 students there. <laughs> so. <laughs> and you were one credit away from having a life of counting beans and uh, debits oh. and credits, huh? Yep. Yep. That's, that's, that's where it was. I had gone previously that, uh, um, for the first two years I was at Southern Illinois University. So I was a Saluki for the first two years, but I transferred back, uh, back to the East Coast. Now, is that where your family and stuff is from and is from that area? Yeah. Yeah. We're from Staten Island originally. And um, in, my, in my book, The Infiltrator, I kind of talk about it. And some people call it a, um, you know, a sense of the street. But I, I had an, a little bit of an unusual family. My grandfather um, and my family lived on First Avenue in Manhattan. And on the same block was a guy by the name of Lucky Luciano that they were affiliated <laughs> Everybody's with. heard of him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so my grandfather had a moving company that uh, moved booze for him during Prohibition. <laughs> and uh, so, so my grandfather had passed away at a very young age, uh, thinking that he could smoke four packs of camels a day. It just didn't work in the long run. Ooh. Yeah. And, and, um, but by the time I got to just my beginning years in college, um, looking for a summer job. My mom, uh, knew some of the people at the dry dock where my grandfather used to work. So I showed up there and, um, and I got the job. And, and, uh, so one of the old timers says to me, how'd you get the job kid? And I said, well, um, my grandfather used to work here years back and my mom knows some of his friends and he goes, well, really, who's your grandfather? Now, Italian Americans on Staten Island who live in that circle have nicknames and um, so he was two beers, uh, two beers Safaro. So uh, I said, well, two beers Safaro. You'd have thought I'd mentioned George Washington. And, um, <laughs> a couple of weeks later, after they verified my story, the, the uh, president of the union came over and he said, uh, kid, you're not going to shape up today with the carpenters. Um, you just need to come to this building in the middle of the, it was affectionately called a shithouse in the middle of, of the, the dry dock is where the bathroom was. And he goes, you just need to hang out here. You know, you know who works here now. And anybody who looks like a cop or anybody coming around, you just bang on the side of the door. I had no idea why. Um, <laughs> I come to find out the bookies taking numbers in the morning. <laughs> and I had to figure out a way to get out of that because my mom um, was adamant that I would have nothing to do with that world. Um, and so and you can only use somebody as a lookout so many times anyway. So thank goodness mm -hmm. I got back to working. Um, and they punished me after that. I became a rigger, which I knew nothing about, with climbing up on these cranes and all kinds of stupid stuff. But uh, but anyway, so so I had hey, a real quick bit question about that, Bob. Before you get for was your was your grandpa was he a, was he a made guy? Was he a wise guy? Um, you know, I don't think you get to work for Lucky Luciano um, and the whole family. You know. His brothers, <laughs> funny, I went to the uh, archives in Manhattan. Wow, what a beautiful resource. It's right near um, City Hall. Uh, they have everything on microfiche. Mm -hmm. I went there because I wanted to surprise my mom 
And back in the old days, tax assessments on buildings were done where they'd send photographers around and they would take pictures of every building on the street. So I went there with my wife and we took picture. We, we got the pictures off the microfiche and we recreated her whole block. And she was like really excited. Oh, wow. Yeah. These are pictures from the 1930s, forties, uh, timeframe. So, um, so while we were there, we also went into the law enforcement records, found a few things that were a little interesting about my, um, my <laughs> about two beers. Brother, oh, about two beers. Well, more, more his, his, uh, brother, Ralph, who, uh, was oh. running down the street, uh, brandishing a gun and uh, chasing a car. And so anyway, I'm not sure what the whole story is there, but, <laughs> but it gave me an opportunity to see what that world is really like. Um, and so when it came time for me to volunteer to do a long-term UC op, um, and the need was to have somebody play uh, an Italian-American, somewhat mob-connected uh, money launderer, I felt like my background, because, you know, I wasn't a criminology major, I was an accounting and business administration finance major, I didn't have to learn a lot to, uh, to understand the business side. And, um, and I'd worked at a bank and a brokerage firm. So I had a lot of, when you're in long term, I really think that you, you need to be as close to your profile as you possibly can. Because I couldn't fake being an 18-wheel uh, truck driver. I, I don't know the first thing about it. No, but you were sure as hell a solid lookout at a shit house for people running numbers. You knew <laughs> that thing true. down this pat. Is, this is true. Uh, that's where he got his street name instead of two beers. They, they call him two shits. <laughs> I don't give two shits about anything. <laughs> Sorry about that, buddy. Hey, before we, before we skip too far ahead. So what was you, so you're getting out of college and you, you're doing this co-op. Who did you apply for? What was your first uh, job getting out of college? A special agent with the uh, IRS, um, and I was there for 11 years. I went on to uh, Customs Office of Enforcement. Now it's HSI, um, and then from there I went over to DEA and finished my career out in DEA. Wow! So let's let's talk about your time at the IRS. So um, when you got on as the special agent, what kind of cases did you start off working? You know, as a new agent, these were pretty amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, try to think. There was a guy who's who was the um, gosh, I can't think of his name now, but anyway, he owned all of the nursing homes, most of the nursing homes in, uh, in New York. And they had a thing at the time where if you were providing, um, whatever it was for the operation of the nursing home, you would get a 50% kickback, so to speak from the government legitimately, you know, because you were getting into an area that was providing uh, services to the, to the elderly. Well, this guy was pretty smart. He created all these front companies that allegedly provided all types of goods that were never provided. And, um, and so he became one of our first ones. Then there was a congressman by the name of Mario Biaggi, who uh, decided that he really didn't want to pay income on a lot of the uh, checks he was <laughs> receiving for stuff. And, and so um, we made a case on him. James Brown uh, made a case on him. Skitch Henderson. Who Wait a minute. Using- the James Brown, the godfather the- of soul? That's right. The James, yeah, father. He was the he. Oh, he was the hardest working man in show business. Apparently, working too hard to pay his taxes. This is true. This is true. So <laughs> no, James okay. Brown, Skitch Henderson, who was the uh, yeah band leader for uh, I guess that was uh, John Johnny Carson back uh, back in the day when his his first one. So yeah, Skitch had a a plan, um, at least according to the court files, where he would uh, sell for charitable. Uh, to charitable organizations, uh, various uh, songs that he'd wrote, 
And of course, um, on paper, they paid him uh, large amounts of money, but he didn't. Ex I mean, they were valued at large amounts of money and he didn't accept the money. So he had these write offs that were questionable as to whether or not they ever existed. So um, but anyway, uh, so they, those types of cases, while the, uh, the guys in the organized crime unit were working on you know, real wise guys from various families in in um, in New York and, you know, kind of under the old Al Capone theory, you know, a lot of those guys, the only way you could get them would be that they didn't report the income from their illegal activities. See, and Bob, there's something I want people to really understand, because I remember working some cases with of some IRS guys on drug dealers and stuff. It took me a minute to wrap my head around this, but it's like, as long as they pay their taxes on their ill-gotten gains, IRS, you know, that's kind of where the the the, the interest stops. Is like, you make a hundred million dollars selling dope, but you pay a taxes on a hundred million dollars. It's like, as far as the IRS is concerned, from that point, you're good. Is that fact or fiction? That's fact. And actually, there's a thing called a John Doe tax return, where um, we had when I came to Florida, and I was still with IRS at that time. Uh, we had uh, th that was the the day of the the young. Uh, sons of fishermen, shrimpers that would go to Colombia or to Jamaica and bring in 50,000 pounds of pot. Um, and this one guy um, had a pretty smart lawyer. He filed a, quote, John Doe tax return that didn't identify him by name, but reported all of his income. And so when it came time for the IRS to go after him, he had his taxes paid. And of course, even when you're another law enforcement agency, it's awfully darn hard to get tax information. Yes, out of it is. <laughs> you know, they barely tell each other in the same office, let alone tell another agency. So, so that that's another uh, option that's out there for uh, for bad guys. I don't know if it's still there, but it was at one time. Wow. So, <laughs> I remember when we were working cases, you wanted an IRS agent assigned to your case just to get access to those records because you couldn't get it anywhere else, yeah. any other way. Well, it's yeah. just like you said about Al Capone, right? What well, Al Capone didn't go to jail for murder and extortion. He went to jail for tax evasion. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. like my like my accountant tells me, it's not illegal to avoid taxes, just to evade them. Don't evade yeah. taxes, kids. Uh -huh. <laughs> and don't do meth. That's our other always uh, standing uh, piece of myth. So, but but you're you're at IRS now. At some point, you start working undercover. Is that while you're at IRS, or does that come later? Uh, I did one that I would call like a mid term, uh, mid level, um, or a mid long term, not a long term, but a mid term. Uh, undercover operation. While I was in IRS, we put together uh, three uh, agencies, DEA, FBI, and IRS. Uh, we were posing as a Coke group. I was the money guy. And um, I can't remember the name of the DEA guy. He's out of uh, the Midwest, out of uh, Detroit or Chicago. Buddy Weinstein, that's his name. Buddy Weinstein um, played the role of the uh, Coke leader of the Coke organization. And and a, a, a DEA agent who could have easily been mistaken for one big defensive tackle on an all-pro team. Uh, he, he played the bodyguard. So, um, and we went after a guy by the name of Bruce Perlowin out of San Francisco, who at the time was probably the biggest marijuana uh, importer. He's bringing in Thai marijuana, uh, a lot of Colombian loads. And um, he was a, a, a hippie. Uh, he had quite a compound in Ukiah, California. So um, I, I just played the money side of it. I got close to um, his accountant and his attorney. And our, our pitch to the accountant and the attorney was after they were cleaning what they thought was dirty money, and it was government money that they were cleaning through Grand Cayman, um, we said, you know, man, we were really looking for some sources for pot, and we'd be willing to exchange it for Coke. 
And of course, by then they trusted us and said, oh, we know who to introduce you to. And um, they introduced us to uh, Bruce Perlowin. And, um, and, we, uh, and, and it was a pretty su- very darn successful case. Did you, now, interestingly enough, uh, we had somebody a few episodes back, and his name by the name of Ken Rijok. So we did an episode with Ken, episode 14. He was the he wrote a book called The Laundry Man, and he that's what he did. He was, you know, the, I think where do you go, Steve? The the Caymans or some other places, and I uh, went down to St. Kitts. St. Kitts, yeah. And that's what he was doing: bulk cash, just taking it down there. Did by chance you ever run across a guy named Ken Rijok? No. All right. No. He was probably trying to avoid you. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was early '80s too, and it was just—I don't think anybody even suspected that you could, you know, anybody would take suitcases yeah. full of money to a foreign island and open a bank account. Well, and we'll talk about that too because I want to talk about the progression of stuff because you know we'll talk later too because 9/11 changed fundamentally a lot of the ways we looked at how money is moved, you know, around and um, drug cartels and stuff like that, but. As an as an IRS agent, were you guys fully sworn at that point, badge carrying, gun carrying agents, or were you guys uh, non sworn? No, we were sworn. Um, badge carrying, gun carrying, depending upon like each region was a fiefdom, so there was like seven or eight regions around the United States, and the regional commissioners in those areas basically were the uh, ones who provided the mandate on how strictly uh, the weapons carrying weapons would be, you know. In um, in in the Southwest, um, it it wasn't a big deal. In the Northeast, it wasn't a big deal. But for some strange reason, we had a regional commissioner in uh, Florida. Um, it kind of became a joke. It's like who's carrying the the office bullet? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mayberry RFD, here we go again, Barney. Who's yeah, who's Barney today? <laughs> but but I, I'm happy to say that now you know I think you know they. It, that's not an issue anymore. And, and, um, uh, and it really shouldn't have been an issue back then. So, um, but, uh, a lot, and, and a lot of, uh, the agents that I know now carry weapons, have the same guidelines as any other agency does, you know, those within IRS. When I was running the, uh, strike force in Atlanta, I had an IRS group assigned to my office and one of the DEA groups, uh, Rob Murphy was a GS back then. He's now the SAC in Atlanta. He was, they were going out on a deal and, uh, Long story short, they were going to serve a search warrant on a guy who was importing ecstasy through the mail out of uh, the Netherlands, I believe it was. And an IRS agent, the female agent that was assigned to that group, she wanted to go on the raid. So she had to call her bosses and get it approved. And this was, it took several days to get her authorized. And it really wasn't a raid. It was just to accompany the guys to go do a knock and talk, serve the warrant, you know, that kind of thing. And so that she finally got approval. They go out there. Well, the guy sees them coming up the driveway, and they do have a search warrant, so they can knock the door open. Uh, and that's what they end up having to do. But apparently, as they were breaching the front door is when he shot himself under the chin, and mm. the bullet went up through his head. He survived, believe it or not. What? You know, we, always, we always kid cops can get a paper cut and die from infection, but bad guys can shoot themselves in the head and survive, which this guy did. But anyway, they got back to the office, and this female agent, she said, I've been an IRS agent for 26 years. That's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my <laughs> life. <laughs> so I love oh my, it. I love it. Yeah, we had a we had a guy named Marty McCormick that we would work cases with out of the Wichita office. And God, M- Marty, God bless him, was not his field tradecraft. Needed a little help. He drove a green Ford LTD with tinted windows, and we kept telling him, "Quit driving by the Target's house." He would just drive by the Target's house like ten or twelve times. Marty, you're a good guy. Here's where we need you. But it was so. You're right. Yeah. It's just so much fun. 
Hey, but let's um, let's real quickly before we move on to the next part. How big at that time was IRS in terms of number of agents? If you remember, how big of an organization was it? Yeah, it was under two thousand, for sure. No kidding. So yeah. not very large at all. No. How did you how did you go about determining thresholds for cases? Because you couldn't take on. I mean, you can invest any case. You investigate any case. You just can't investigate every case. What, what kind of thresholds back in that day did would you guys look at in terms of? Would it be a lower threshold if it was in a targeted area? You know, like uh, say let's say brothels or uh, uh, gambling or cartel stuff. Did you have different standards for different things? Yeah. And again, it, it got mandated by the regional commissioners and some of them were very, very um, focused on go, doing what we call general program cases, which was, you know, criminal tax cases that didn't even relate to uh, people who were involved in illicit uh, activities. Um, if you were fortunate enough to have kind of an aggressive regional commissioner, they'd allow a greater percentage of uh, organized crime cases, narcotics cases, those types of things. So, and we all carried um, cases that were, and I wish I, preliminary cases. So, so I might've had five or six cases that I was trying to develop um, mm -hmm. while I had a case, I might've been assigned a case by my boss uh, that came in, it was a referral from the revenue agent and, and, and might've been a, I, I was on one case, it was a longshoreman who was thought to be uh, paying bribes. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, I kind of gravitated toward those types of cases. But then just like in every other agency, you know, you carried informants. And so if you had informants that were in a particular walk of life, um, you know, and most of mine that I tried to uh, develop were organized crime related, you had a tendency to work more of them. But uh, it, it really varied quite a bit. And, and there was this constant pressure that we want to get voluntary compliance by the general public. So therefore, we have to have a certain percentage of everyday corporate Joes who are ripping off the government for taxes um, out there getting prosecuted so that the everyday Joes know they can't do this. Mm. So um, so it, it was a balance, but there, there were more general program cases than there were uh, organized crime cases, that's for sure. You know what? It just made me realize if I'm ever going to be an informant, I don't want to be an informant for the IRS. You talk about wanting taxes, receipts, and signing off on stuff, and let me see your John Doe tax return. <laughs> no. Sorry, man. I'll go work for DEA where they just throw money at you all the time. Right, Murph? Oh, yeah. That's that's the way we are. We don't even record it. You know. We have well, fancy they, cars. <laughs> they have a great uh, – the IRS has for a longer time than most agencies had a wonderful whistleblower program where, you know – good whistleblowers can get 30% of whatever the government recovers. Now it takes wow. three lifetimes in order to get that money because it has mm -hmm. to be collected and in the coffers of the IRS uh, before they cut up what, you know, what it is the informant's supposed to get. So their grandkids or maybe their grandkids, grandkids, you know, can look forward <laughs> to, to, to getting the reward. You got Not grandpa sitting out on the front porch going back in aught five, I filed a return and guess what? It just came yesterday and grandpa's dying tomorrow. So, <laughs> hey, what's actually let's before we move on, what's were you do you recall what a the biggest payout you ever heard under that case was? Under which case? The whistleblower case. Oh, like, no. Back then, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I know that when, when I went over to customs, our, our hands were tied. We couldn't give more than 250 grand to somebody who was. Uh, providing information on a case, um, while the IRS had this thirty percent thing um, that they had going on. So, um, but I, I I couldn't tell you 
Okay. Um, I'd still sign up for 250 grand. You know, that's not a bad day's work. Yeah, Do one case well, a year, you know? Yeah, I guess. But, you know, now um, those whistleblower programs are broadly being provided uh, out there. And I think they should. You know, if you're, if you're going to be working on the head of a drug cartel, um, you're probably going to need that money in order to uh, figure out or you're going to live. Yeah. <laughs> How you're going to survive. <laughs> That's right. right. Hey, well, let's talk about, because you were on 11 years. Um, what At what point did you decide, did you get the itch, and how did that happen? How did you get the itch to go from one agency to another, from there over to customs? Was it something that happened? Was it a natural gravitation based on the cases you were working? Give us an idea. What, what popped into your head one day that goes, hmm, 11 years at the IRS is enough for me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was assigned to a joint agency IRS customs thing called Operation Greenback. So Operation Greenback was focused on doing nothing other than identifying money launderers and trying to take them down. Uh, there was a, a larger Operation Greenback initiative in Miami um, that was really led by um, a now unfortunately deceased uh, former IRS agent by the Mike, I can't remember Mike's last name now. Boy, I'll tell you what, it's tough to get old. But uh, Isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it? It is. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, in Tampa, we were working on uh, cases. And, you know, the IRS, as we were talking about before, have a lot of layers of approval. So I would write a search warrant affidavit. And by the time it got through regional counsel, general counsel, district counsel, everybody else, my PC was, it was dead. I mean, it was more than 30 days old. So, oh so I, I'd go to, uh, yeah, I, John I Dillinger is dead. We don't need the warrant anymore. Uh, the, the IRS, I mean, in the, I mean, in customs, I went over to the customs guy. I go like, well, maybe you should do the affidavit. He goes, yeah, sure. Give it me. I'll write it. And, um, I'll take it to the judge tonight. I go, what? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'll just take it to the magistrate. He'll magistrate will sign off on it. And we'll, we'll be out there knocking the door down the day after. I said, you could do that? <laughs> they said, yeah. yeah. I said, well, that sounds a lot more fun. <laughs> you know what, what you made doing. it sound like earlier was almost sound like the, the mob. Hey, everybody gets their get. I get a piece of this guy, then it goes up to the cap, you know, the, then the capitals yeah. get something, then everybody gets their get. And so it sounds like, but like you're going, see, this, that's the fun part too. Is like when you start working with another agent and you, and you realize whatever it is that you go, you guys can do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The, the probable cause was stale. Uh, if if I was going to try to do it through uh, through IRS, and then so I had helped to develop a case um, on Operation Greenback that I started when I was with IRS, and then I transferred, so I finished it with Customs. There's no way on this planet that IRS would have authorized what we ultimately did. It was a lawyer um, who in was very well known in the Tampa Bay area, mostly because he was a very very high profile divorce lawyer. But a lot of his clients were these kids who were the shrimpers that were bringing in all this pot. And so he was helping them to launder money. He was doing all kinds of stuff. So I got a search warrant as a customs agent. I got a search warrant to search a law office. And, of course, we took an assistant U.S. attorney who became the China Wall between those records that were uh, truly privileged and those that we were looking for. And we scored... Swiss bank records, uh, outlines of money laundering methodologies. We identified all this uh, money going over to Switzerland being used as collateral on a loan that was brought back to build a high-rise timeshare that we seized. Um, it, it, it was like I was a kid in a candy shop, man. I, mm -hmm. I was having a great, great time. 
Hey, but let's go back for a second. How did how does one go from IRS to customs? Is it like you said you transferred, but is it a transfer? Is it a whole application process? Do you have to go through the academy? What's it like when you move from one federal agency like that to another? And, and whole, at that time, right, the IRS was part of Treasury, right? Yes. Yeah, and so was customs. That which made it probably a little bit easier. A little right? bit easier. Yeah. 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 So um no, you have to make an application. Uh, my boss, Paul O'Brien in in Tampa, uh there was a period of time where a significant number of customs agents around the nation or IRS agents became customs agents. Uh, they, they did a huge customs, did a huge recruiting and, and they wanted. What was the their IRS recruiting agents. poster? We can get warrants in 24 hours. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and yeah, you had to go through the Academy. Um, I've been through three of them. And, um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's no way around it. You've got to you got to go through all that. So, um, what year was that that you started then with customs? Eighty three. What was what was the big thing? Was it just that one operation, Operation Greenback, that made you decide to do that? Was there anything else, just like the type of work, or was that kind of one of the things that said, "Man, I if you want to get stuff done, you got to be able to work somewhere where they can get stuff done." Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was 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 all about. You know, in customs then, unlike customs today. Um, they were growing so fast and they were still pretty much led by the leadership from um, from its less formal period. You know, I got the DEA and I came to learn that there's a form for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you want to go to the bathroom, there's a form. So mm-hmm. um, but at customs, it was like wing it. So <laughs> so it, it was it was a nice place to live for a while, for sure. What was driving the growth at that time of, you said custom was expanding. What, what was going on in the world that was making it expand that fast? Uh, they were really uh, focusing in on, on going after the money laundering side, which is why the IRS guys were so, uh, they were so attracted to. Plus, they were phasing out patrol officers who were pretty much handling Marine Patrol and those types of things. They, reca- uh, they, they reorganized what that position would be, making it a lower grade. And so they had to bring in all these patrol officers uh, as agents. So that expanded them quite a bit you know, as well. Let's talk about that. So now you go to customs. Where do you, where do you start working at? What's your first post in customs? Tampa. Yeah, I was in Tampa the whole time. Uh, I, you know, I, I've, I've transferred agencies more than I've transferred cities. So, uh, <laughs> I started off in New York I, and I came to Tampa and, um, you know, and, and I gotta tell you a quick story about, um, the quality of, not that there's a lack of quality now in leadership and management, but it's just a way of thinking that was, I think different back then. When I was in Manhattan, uh, my wife gave birth to our first child. She had massive complications. And I used up all of my annual leave, all of my sick leave. And I went to my boss and I said, you know, I've got a sister-in-law who's a nurse down in Tampa. um, And my family's agreed to take my wife. So um, could you possibly give me three days without pay so I could drive down, drop her off and come back up? So uh, my boss said, well, come and see me tomorrow. So I came back and I saw him. He goes, man, you are a lucky guy. I said, how's that? He goes, well, you got that 90-day detail to Tampa. I said, really? Wow. <laughs> what a nice yeah. guy. Yeah. So now I, I go down. My buddies in New York took care of me. They sent me down. I go to the Tampa office and I show up. It happened to be the same first day for the new group soup um, there. There was only one group of IRS agents in, in Tampa. 
and I went to see him, Walt Jones. And I said, Walt, you know, I'm here, I'm on the 90 day detail. And he goes, aren't you the guy with the sick wife? I said, yeah. He goes, well, why the hell are you here? Go home, go take care of her. I said, old school. Old I said, school. Yeah. I said, man, if you knew my wife, uh, she'd be hoping I'm here during the day. <laughs> Put up with me 24 hours a day is not something that she's uh, really going to be crazy about. My sister-in-law's got that covered. So I took a case and I started working on this simple case, um, altered documents case. So some yo-yo wound up coming into the IRS with all these documents to substantiate expenses on his tax return. And they were all made up. So, you know, it wasn't too hard forensically to, to prove these were all made up. And um, so now I'm, I'm with this guy on an interview. Then he tries to solicit, um, offer a bribe. And now I'm, now I'm dealing with internal affairs. They got me wired up dealing with this guy. And for Tampa, that was a big deal case. So I got ready to leave. And the, the group soup said, how'd you like to work here? And I said, great. But, you know, my, I got to go back to my buddies up there who made, made me uh, this detail available. He said, well, if you want to come here, I can make it happen. So I said, okay. And I went back up and apologized to my friends. And I just said, <laughs> I just said listen, I don't know if she's going to have a relapse or not. And we don't really know where all this is going to go. So I hope you understand. I, I, I really can't, from a family perspective, I can't pass this up. And they, they were understanding. And, um, but it, I, I, it's just, that was real old school, like you said, Steve. And um, mm-hmm. it was a time when, when uh, people found a way to do the right thing. Right. It's, it's amazing how that's changed. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me ask you a question, Bob. Had you taken the bribe and you filled out a John Doe IRS form, you would have been good on the tax part, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank, oh, thank God. How big of was it? How big of a bribe was it? Oh, it was you know compared to today's things, it was like a dollar ninety eight. You know, was, <laughs> come on, <laughs> this is your A game, pal. A buck ninety eight. That's a bribe. Yeah. No, the way he said it was, hey, you know, we've got this festival coming on. And I, I'm going to have these booths there and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've been looking for a silent partner and it won't really cost you anything. And, you know, um, it'd really be nice if if um, if we get this IRS thing all squared away. And, you know, it was obvious what he was talking about. So we never got to the point of how much money it was going to be because I wasn't about to go to a carny and uh, and and work the stand. So <laughs> not unless you got free popcorn and cotton candy out of it. Yeah. Dang it. Or That's here right. it's. Or in Florida, it's deep fried, whatever it is. Deep fried, it's, whatever it's it is. Yeah. Deep fried anything. <laughs> that's a Southern thing. That's, that's, that's why we look the way we do. Deep fried beer. <laughs> Give me a beer. Um, That'll work. That'll work. Hey, well, let's let's start let, let's start kind of navigating now towards one of the reasons uh, that we're here to talk today because you've had an interesting career. Not only in the fact you work for three different federal agencies, but you you took your experiences and you turned them into a book, which the book then turned into a movie. And not just a movie, but one that Brian Cranston, who ended up becoming obviously a huge star, um, you know, started it. But let's let's go back and talk about the beginnings of this. Uh, so, at what point did the origins of what became the book became known as the Infiltrator, and you called it uh, Operation What C Chase, right? Right. Now, what did the C stood for? Cartel, not not S C A, folks. This is audio, obviously audio, but like C, the letter C, like for cartel. You know, it's it's this. That's a hilarious story because you know the bosses always want to have some tricky thing for what the C is for. It was, it was, and and they're telling the media, oh, it's uh, cocaine, Colombians, and and cash. What really happened was, I'm in my boss's office, and he goes, "We need a name. You know, it's it's got to have a handle." So one of the guys, we we had an apartment, and it's the only kind of a dwelling that 
the government would have paid for, which was like 275 bucks a month for this rat infested apartment that was supposed to be a meeting place that we were going to use. But the place was called Caliber Chase. And the guy had his hand on the invoice. And all I could see was the C and Chase. I said, okay, let's go with C Chase. That sounds good. And later on, <laughs> later on, it, it all became all of this fancy stuff. But that's the truth of how it became Sea Chase. You know, and you know, you know what? That's one of the hardest things in the world is to come up with that operational name. And yes. it's funny you met, it's funny you mentioned that, Bob, because uh, my old partner Kevin Stevens and I, we had, we were starting an operation targeting some Colombians and bringing coke up and the money going back, and we ended up, uh, you know, after days and days of deliberation, we called it Operation Three C's. Colombians, currency, and cocaine. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. It took you three days to come up with this name. No, as a taxpayer, I'm offended. What were you doing during those three days? Well, uh, there might have been a bar involved in alcohol. And, uh, Kevin was single, and he was always looking for uh, well-endowed young ladies. And you know, Speaking of three C's, here. I'm surprised you didn't call it the three D's then or the double D. Anyway, but <laughs> if he'd have thought of it, he would. <laughs> Well, now now we get the real story about Operation Sea Chase. But but to do part of that, you obviously are going to get into an undercover role. When does your undercover training start? Does it start as a result of this, or do you do some undercover work and training prior to that? Well, in order to do undercover work in customs at that time, you had to go through and be certified through their long-term undercover training, which I thought was excellent, excellent training. Initially, you've got to take a barrage of psychological tests. Somehow I slipped through. <laughs> and 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 I was allowed to go to the school, and um and then they had uh, psychologists. They had a psychologist, a lot of long term undercovers. Joe Pistone was my mentor, uh, who was a guest. Uh, Wait a minute, you're kidding. Joe Pistone yeah. was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a guest. Well, you know, Joe had left um, FBI for a while, and then came back because of his friendship with Louis Free. Um, and, and then was able to get his retirement. But I mean, he walked off a somewhat unhappy puppy, um, there for, for a while, but he was involved in the undercover school. Um, a guy. Hey, real wrote, quick too, let, let people know too. I mean, we know Joe Pistone, tell everybody why that name is infamous in the world of undercover. Oh you know? yeah. The, the man who uh, actually did the five-year infiltration of, uh, the Bonanno family who, um, um, for five years, and and is by far um, I, the most accomplished long-term undercover agent that that I've ever seen or known of. I mean, he the things that he did were re- really phenomenal. And they well, made the movie Donnie Brasco about Donnie that. Brasco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and who, by the he, way, for our listeners, Joe has agreed to come on the show, so he'll be on here. Oh, eventually. wonderful! Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, great man. And um, uh, his wife. Uh, and a daughter I've met because we've been out. And so has uh, Steve. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been out to uh, San Diego where we've occasionally volunteered our time for uh, a charitable event uh, out there. Yep. So, um, yeah. So, so now you need to go through the school and, you know, when I'm, when I'm speaking, you know, okay, I've shrunk a couple inches in my old age, but um, you know, I wasn't the tallest guy in the world before. So generally, when I get in front of an audience, I say, and we start talking about the impacts of long-term undercover, and I tell them, well, you know, if I had a picture of our graduating class from that school, you would see 
what the impacts of undercover did because before I did Operation Sea Chase, I was six foot two. I had blonde hair, blue eyes, and I was Scandinavian. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now I'm a little Italian from New York, <laughs> so it can really have an impact. But you know, they they went through a lot of stuff. You know, especially about how to securely develop a an undercover identity. One of the things, and I went through the IRS school before I went through the custom school. They were both, uh, I thought, outstanding. And one of the things that was always drilled into my head by the seasoned long-term undercovers is, you know, you're going to have people in headquarters who are going to be willing and able to provide you with assistance, helping you open up bank accounts and credit cards and all that other stuff. Um, but if you can do it without that, I strongly suggest you do it without that, because I can tell you this, there's nobody in headquarters that's going to get you an American Express credit card that isn't in the file going to have a thing that says, when this card becomes unpaid overdrawn, get in touch with so-and-so in Washington, D.C., um, within this agency. And um, that's not the kind of thing you really want to have dangling out there. So <laughs> That's not so, a good backstop. Yeah. So I, 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 um, most of my uh, UC identities uh, were built from infant deaths. Um, you know, in that Bruce Perlowin case that I talked about when we did the search warrant on Bruce's house, we got 250 partially made identities, um, with backstop stuff in him. And we had a treasure trove of, uh, of detail, uh, to, to make, uh, backstopping. But what I did, I spent about a year and a half after I went through the school, putting together, uh, the Robert Musella identity and the companies. And I think we did it in a very dot the I cross the T way, a little bit different than I think might normally happen. You know, in order to build credit, um, I used my own money to open up checking savings accounts. I had a good friend who was a banker. I borrowed against my own balances that gave me credit. I got credit cards, uh, used those. I was embedded in real businesses. So there weren't government storefronts where if the bad guys showed up, the lights were out because the government didn't know the bad guys were coming in town. Um, <laughs> the only people who knew uh, who I really were uh, was were uh, the, the president of that group of companies um, and two informants that I had that were affiliated with one of the five uh, crime families in New York. And, you know, there are certain things that no matter how good you are, now Joe Pistone could do it, but there's not a lot of Joe Pistones out there. My partner, Amir Abreu, who's, if Joe's number one in the world, Amir's number two. He doesn't need a lot of, I mean, me, I got to take my wallet out and show, hey, this is who I am, you know, dot my eye, cross my teeth. Now, Amir walks in a room and everybody goes, that's a badass. And yeah. um, they, <laughs> there's certain people that just have that, um, but it's not in my nature. You know, I'm not, uh, I, you know, I'd be like Joe Pesci. I can, there's only one role that I can play. I've got to be a little. I've got to be a little Italian uh, money launderer. That's about yeah, it. Yeah, but Joe, little Joe Pesci, like in what was it, uh, Casino, whacks the guy, hits him with the shovel, whatever, takes him out into the desert and buries him, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, but you know, I'll tell you what. This one guy that I had as an informant, who I had made a case on back in that lawyer case. Most of my, I don't know about you guys, but most of my really good informants were guys that I made cases on that mm -hmm. realized that after they finished serving their time, I treated them like a human being. Right. And, they and that's, knew, that's the benefit of doing that. Yep. They knew they could trust me. Um, they also knew that if they screwed up, they were going to have to pay the price. Yep. And um, so this guy, 
um, in that case that involved the all, all the marijuana smugglers and the lawyer, um, he was the the uh, collector of bad debts, and he used to be a bodyguard for a capo in Atlanta, um, and and uh, so <laughs> he's the kind of guy that again, if you just look at him, there's there's no way. I mean, if you saw the Infiltrator movie, there was a guy in the movie called Dominic who that was the character. Mm -hmm. He, he, he got, he got my uh, former informant, Alex, absolutely perfect. And um, so, I mean, Alex had a lot of experience. Alex worked for a guy who was one of the bigger uh, drug traffickers in Florida. Uh, Alex's partner showed up in a field with uh, six shots to the head. Um, A lot of people around, were um, were guys who uh, paid a big price, and um, he went in the witness protection program. So now I got him as my uh, playing the role of my cousin. I, the one thing I told him was, you ask these guys any questions about who they are, or I know of any way that you try to get in touch with them, I promise you, brother, I'm coming back. And there's no way on earth. This is what you got to do. You're just going to give me credibility. I'll call you in to do your cameo, and and that's it. So one of the higher guys that I dealt with, a guy by the name of Roberto Elcaino in the, in the infiltrator story played by Benjamin Bratt in the movie. Um, I'm with Elcaino. We're having a lunch. And um, so Alex walks in, Alex had like 17 businesses that he was always running. And this one was uh, suntan lotion and uh, shirts that had the branding on them and all this other stuff. And he goes, Hey boss, you know, I, so I don't, don't want to bother you in this meeting, but uh, I need to chat with you for a minute and blah, 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 blah. And so after he left, Alex goes to me, let me guess, Sicilian born in Brooklyn and started stealing cars when he was 13. I said, you almost got it right. He started when he was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and don't piss but, him off. And don't piss him off because I'll tell you what, and, and there was a reason that I wanted him to see him because I wanted him to know that I am not a mark. And if, right. you know, if, if they're going to try to take money from me, there's going to be hell to pay for it. And, um, and he did a great job. And the other, uh, made, uh, not made, but, um, I, I would say he was connected. Um, he was a knock, he would, what they call a knock around guy. He would work for different families and that type of thing. But the other guy who was also a knock around guy had an affiliation with a, um, brokerage firm on wall street. So, you know, imagine these as props, you know, I had a, an investment company, uh, in Florida, a mortgage brokerage business, air charter service with a private jet jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East coast. And I could take them into the brokerage firm, had about 40, 45 people that worked there with a seat on the New York stock exchange. So I would take them on the floor of the exchange and talk to them about how the exchange works because I used to work in a brokerage firm and I know what that stuff's all about. So those types of things and being in social clubs that, you know, you either had to be uh, a made guy, a politician or both uh, in order to be a member, um, uh, were all the kind of uh, passive reinforcements that caused these guys to believe that I was, you know, who I claimed I would be. And they did a lot of checking. And if I didn't have those real businesses to backstop me, I would have had some real problems. Jeez, and here I am working in Miami, and if I'm going to work UC, I put on a pair of shorts and boat shoes and a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't shave for a few days, and there I go. 
Yeah, that's, Murph, that's why you didn't graduate at the top of your class in UC school. So Yeah, a little more complex what he's doing here. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, and Bob knows what I'm getting ready to say, because when uh, when Bob and I got to meet each other, he he gave me a phone call after Narcos came out, and that's how we got to be friends. And uh, he sent me his book, The Infiltrator, and I read it, and I loved it. And then I called back, and I said, I need about, you know, I need about 30 to 60 minutes of your time. And so he we set it up and everything, and I called him, and I said, I just read this. I've read certain sections multiple times. I've watched the freaking movie. I still don't understand what the hell you did. Explain this to me. <laughs> so, and he's going to explain it to us here in just a second. But when he finished to this day, I still can't explain to you what he did, except <laughs> he took down a really big ass bank. <laughs> this is complicated stuff for everybody. Yeah. It's, I got the people with the money that were moving money. And then there was all these things about money, and that was the case, Steve. That's all you need yeah. to know, right? So I, just give me an award. I, I, took them, I took them down. <laughs> hey, well, but, but, but you know, Bob, it, it's, I'm glad you said that because we've talked to some guys from ATF, you know, for example. They spent, uh, you know, they spent a lot of time, too, uh, on their UC, uh, their identity, because they had to backstop a lot of things. You had to, you could not just one day pop in and say, hey, I'm going to be a, a, you know, outlaw motorcycle gang rider. Or you can't pop in one day and say, hey, I'm going to be a, a high finance guy for the cartels. you got to have not just the UC training, but you've got to have some real world experience. So explain how important, how much more authentic you were able to portray your role when you actually had the background in that stuff. Because people, you said not only they checked out your identity, but these guys are good at sniffing out bullshit. I mean, if you're bullshitting them, they can tell, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and you know, I think the, uh, the UC school, it's undercover, long-term undercover, in my view. You know, think of it three-dimensional. It's really, there's a lot more to it even just than safely setting up your UC identity, your UC businesses that are backstopped, um, and, and those types of things. Like, I would never, ever use my UC phone to get in touch with anybody connected to the government. It just ain't going to happen. I would go to pay phones. That's how old that case is. And I'd go to pay phones in, in Miami, um, right along Brickell Avenue, right behind the BCCI building. There were, there were like three rows of pay phones, maybe 12 feet deep in each one. There'd be Rolls Royces, Maseratis, guys there with painted, <laughs> painted fingernail. I, I'm there at like one in the morning and I'm calling my handler and I'm calling, uh, I'd call my wife every other day and I would call uh, the prosecutor. And that's one thing in this case, I'll tell you, it was a big difference maker. When I wrote the undercover operation and I didn't do any undercover in the beginning, we set it up two stage. Stage one was my partner. If he could get us to the point where stage two would be logical, then I was going to be the Mr. Big Guy who came in. And I did. And then I dropped being the, the, the uh, case agent. And I strictly was uh, the primary undercover. But we had I designed it right from the beginning with the prosecutor assigned to it. And every single step of the way, the prosecutor was kept in the loop. And it's not like, you know, I've heard other prosecutors when they get cases, you know, the case is already made and there's a flaw in the case. And the prosecutor goes, you know, I fly planes, but I don't make them. Mm -hmm. So if there is a fault and a plane goes down, it's not his fault. Well, I didn't want that. I wanted the prosecutor in from day one. I wanted to make sure that we were very focused on what pitfalls we might otherwise be creating. And there are a lot of things that I learned in the undercover school. Uh, about defense tactics in undercover cases in an effort to try to embarrass and 
make the undercover or the undercover operation look bad. You know, a simple thing. It's called transactional analysis. So if you're working undercover and the case isn't going that fast, what's your boss, what's your supervisor telling you to do? Call the guy, call the guy, call the guy, call the guy. Okay. So now as a defense attorney, I write, I I make a graph. My poor guy got contacted a hundred times by the undercover. My guy called him twice. You know, this is the government overreaching. They're causing this crime. You know, little things like that. Even if like back that back in the day, we'd have beepers. So if I got a beeper, if I got a call on my beeper and I called the guy back, I'd make sure that when I started the recording, I'd say, hey, you paged me. What do you need? Um, so that I can prove that there is an initiation by him and, and not a constant thing by me. Trial preparation. A lot of a lot of agencies, unfortunately, think the work is over when the indictments are handed down and nothing could be further from the truth. That's when the real work begins. Imagine this. We're at the end of a two year undercover assignment in the infiltrator. Um, my partner and I had recorded twelve hundred conversations. I would and who's get... going to transcribe all of those, right? <laughs> That's right. And I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting management's going like, you got to stop talking. You got to keep these meetings short. You got to do that. You got. I'm no, sorry, man. I, I got to insert that. We just got through. So we our latest podcast that uh, came out, or as we're recording this, is Chris Bayless, uh, he, legendary undercover guy for ATF. One of the things he learned, he said he learned to be a man of few words on these tapes because the more he talked, the more he had to transcribe. So it was like, say the least amount possible, transcribe the least amount. Well, I think if you're going to go into a buy bus type situation, you know, that's one thing. But if you're going to go into a situation where you're trying to develop rapport and communication and you're trying to climb the ladder, the last thing you want to do is continue to work with the same bad guys, cleaning the same money, going in the same route. You're not finding out about any new bad guys. You're not finding about any new actionable information. That's all you're doing is a disaster. You're facilitating crime is all you're doing right there. There was an operation long before uh, uh, Sea Chase. There was an operation the FBI did called Banco Shares. And I remember the people saying, you know, wow, that was really a big case. They laundered $400 million. I go, really? So, and how many bodies did anybody get? No, everybody's down in Colombia. I didn't get very many bodies. And it's like, do you really think that that's a big case? You know, we laundered in Sea Chase a total of, I think, 32 or $34 million. There were times I turned deals down because I did not want to deal with the same people over and over again. And you just find a reason why, you know, you're not going to do it. And frankly, it makes you more believable because if you're a cop, you're constantly wanting, most of the time, they're going to constantly want to want to take it on. I, I insisted on an approach that a lot of people didn't think was a good approach, but I insisted on it. And that was, I gave the money broker an opportunity. He was a wannabe money broker who had great contacts. He went to high school with Fabio Ochoa. Mm -hmm. So he knew all the big guys, but he didn't really have the capability of being able to launder that much money. And I said, okay, Gonzalo, we're going to do three months trial. We'll see how it goes. But I'm going to tell you, the feds here are looking for accounts where big money in, big money out, big money in, big money out. I can't afford to do that. I've got other responsibilities. I always told them, you know, 
I have responsibilities to people here who've given me the authorization to see what the Colombian market is like. But if I do anything to screw up, you know, even though these are people I've known all my life, I'm, I'm going to wind up in a garbage dump. So I cannot do anything to risk them. You guys are the cherry on the top of the cake. So you're going to have to do it my way, or we're just not going to be able to do a long-term thing. So I said, you got to convince them to let me hold some of this money. We got to be able to invest it. Um, you know, not a lot, 15, 20%. Um, we'll move the other stuff out. He comes back and he goes, I can't do it. They won't, they won't go for it. I get, okay, here's the deal. You can either give me the opportunity to speak with them directly to convince them or we're done. It's over. Well, guess what? I got a lot of meetings. I got to meet Roberto El Cayeno. Go ahead. And Bob, you, you hit upon something we, we talked about with Dominic Polifron when he was working Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, because he did the same thing. Bad guys never expect cops to walk away from deals. They expect them to take anything that's thrown at them. And when, you, when you've got the power to say no and you walk away, not only does it put it in there, well, they can't be a cop because they're, they're, they're walking away from this, but it makes you even more important that Dominic, that's what he did. He, he, would, he worked across, they made a huge case, I think, Steve, what was it, 65 arrests or whatever, yeah. that one case. He'd work a guy for a while, and then he'd talk to one guy, said, hey, this guy, he, he's not really worth it. I need to work with you directly. Then it'd be another guy. And to your point, he just didn't deal with the same guys. He ended up working 65 different guys you know, over a period of time. Uh, and that's what I think people forget. This is, this is about UC, but this is also about psychology and you've got to be willing to walk away from a deal. Yeah. Well, one, one thing you mentioned too, uh, Bob, and you've already described it to a degree, but I'm not sure our listeners understand what backstopping is. Can you just reiterate that for them so they've got an understanding? Yeah, sure. So, um, I was Robert Masella. I had a birth certificate in the name of Robert Masella. Um, I had a social security number. Now here's a, a, a thing. You, if you guys are going to, going to, uh, put your identity together, social security numbers, tell a story. They explain where in the United States that card was issued. And they tell you the years within which that card has been issued. And then the last four digits are unique identifiers. I knew that I'd been taught that in the IRS undercover school. So, um, government wants to give me uh, an ID and they want to give me this social security. So I explained to them why that wasn't going to work. And um, so I went back to the IRS um, to one of my best buddies it was at the IRS and they have access to all the social security numbers. Now, for some strange reason or another, about every 20th or so numbers is a non-issued number. Why? I don't know, but it's a fact. Mm -hmm. So I gave them my real social security number and asked them to get me a number not used by anybody else within a, a close range of mine. And that became my social security number. So if anybody had the common sense to check that, then they were going to, they were going to find a social security number that was going to match. Now I can't be somebody who fell out of the sky. I need to be somebody with an employment history. Well, how am I going to get an employment history? Well, number one, through informants, I was able to be able to get, I was able to get myself established at least with backstopping where they would confirm that I worked at a particular company at a particular time. Plus the brokerage firm that I worked for Montgomery Scott had gone bankrupt. Well, that was a good one to stick on there because how are you going to find whether or not, you know, somebody from a, a, a brokerage firm that had been bankrupt for nearly mm -hmm. 10 years uh, was, was ever really around. I needed to have credit 
So, you know, I went to, I had two good buddies who were officers at banks and um, they opened up accounts for me. Unfortunately, I had to put my own money in there um, because there wasn't anything in the playbook that said that I was going to be able to get this money that I was going to be able to use to put into those accounts. So that gave me credit cards that gave me an ability to be able to borrow against my savings account. Um, and my wife's still pretty upset about that because we're at that, that was a period of time when we were two checks away from bankruptcy. And, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I used it was to tell not, my wife and I used to say the same thing. We we're so broke. We can't pay attention. Come on. You can't afford it, man. <laughs> yeah. So then, and now it comes time to get, uh, a, a, um, passport. Hey, Bob, so, hold, hold on before you go on that. I got a real quick question. Just from a, a, a legal standpoint or a case standpoint, did you run into an issue with defense or with any legal issues, the fact that you were using your own money and not government money to do this stuff? No, not, not with respect to those accounts. You know, later on, I was able to convince the government to give us what's called refundable funds. Um, I got $5 million in refundable funds because I kept telling them, listen, the only people that take four days to five days to turn around a money laundering deal is an agent. Mm-hmm. I can't be in that position. I'll tell you what, let's do this. We pick up a million bucks. Even though we're government workers, we can figure out whether there's at least $750,000 in there pretty quick. So why don't I pay within 24 hours, three quarters of the month money, and within five to six days, I'll get you the other 25%. I finally convinced them to do that. We had to keep meticulous records. IRS was the auditing, behind the scenes auditing uh, group that uh, followed all the nickels and dimes. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, but on the personal accounts, it it wasn't an issue. I used my personal money to buy clothes. There was nothing, there was nothing in there about buying an Armani suit, you know, and, and um, (laughs) you can't, I remember in my uh, IRS undercover school, the guy goes, you're going to try to tell people, not talking to me in particular, but, you know, just to the class, you're going to try to convince people that you're this big time guy and you're sitting across a coffee table and you cross your feet, your, your foot across your knee. And he's looking at the biggest hole in the sole of your shoe <laughs> and it's made by JC Penney. Yeah. <laughs> and don't think people don't realize that. So, um, you know, or you show up in an 83 Toyota that's been beat up and, you know, halfway to being repossessed. Yeah. Well, my, and my boss said, you know, as far as a meeting place, he goes, you know, well, you just, just tell them you're not going to take them to your house. And then you're at this meeting, uh, this apartment place for meeting. I go, okay, so I'm going to tell them that I don't trust them and they can't come to my house, but they need to trust me because I want to know everything about them. And I'd love to go to their house. So how does that work? So <laughs> what we did wound up doing is the mob guy uh, had a hell of a nice house and, um, and he played the role of my cousin. So I had the cover story of, listen, I, the house is in my cousin's name. And um, when I'm in town, it's mine. When, when I'm out of town, he and his wife and his two kids, you know, stay there. And anytime the bad guys came in town and I needed the house, we'd put them up at a hotel and that became my house. If I didn't do that, I would have never had the ability, you know, to be able to do that. And one of the things that I was, uh, there's, there's a group of things that I was taught in the undercover schools about how to enhance rapport and communication. And I do an executive retreat thing on that. There's like nine specific steps that you can take 
whether you are trying to date the captain of the cheerleaders or you want to meet Pablo Escobar. They're all pretty much um, usable in whatever walk of life that it might be. But one of the first things is you have to care enough about your target to do some research about them. Why? Because undoubtedly there are going to be things that are things they don't like at all, and you don't want that to be something that you like, and there are going to be things they like, which you really want that to be something that you like. You're basically looking for reasons of why you have things in common. So Roberto Alcaino, one of the major transporters for the Medellin cartel, worked with Fabio Ochoa. They had a lab in Bolivia um, making thousands of kilos at a time, shipping it to Argentina, went through a pipeline, through an um, anchovy packing plant, really sophisticated, going into Spain, Italy, and into the U.S. So he comes to visit me. I, he was a failed target of several OSIDIF cases before me. So there was a lot of intel in there about him. He lived in Pasadena on the side of the hill overlooking the Rose Bowl. Beautiful, beautiful home, collections of, collection of Rolls Royces, a religious guy who just happened to be a dope dealer. He, he dealt with it like widgets. So, um, and he was a jeweler, a high-end jeweler. So now we met a couple times and he made promises about things we were going to do and it didn't come out the way he said, and we're still dealing nickels and dimes instead of millions. So I went to, uh, to Alex, my mobster, one of my mobster uh, sources. And I said, have you ever had this kind of a problem? And how do you deal with it? How is it that you wind up getting them to finally go through with the big promise of a big relationship? He goes, oh, that's easy. I would always buy, I would give them a gift to bless the relationship that they just told us we were going to have. I go through this little ritual about, you know, how we're blood brothers and, you know, we'll die for each other and all this other stuff. And uh, he goes, it worked every time. So I'm thinking, okay, if I go to my boss, he's going to authorize enough money for me to buy a 19 inch black and white TV. Not going to be very impressive to the high-end jeweler. <laughs> so, Wait till you so, break out the fruit basket. There, That's when yeah, it'll set it go. over the top. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd have gone with the edibles, yeah. No, uh, so, so Roberto comes to, quote, my house, which is really Alex's house. And in the garage is a Rolls Royce, which one of the informants, um, the one who owned the businesses that I was uh, in, in, inside of, he let us use it. So now I, and I didn't even need to use it. I just wanted sitting there because we were going to enter the house to the garage. And I never said anything about the Rolls Royce, but Roberto saw it immediately. Starts talking Rolls Royces. I know he's a Rolls Royce aficionado. So now I'm studying. I know everything I can think of at the time about Rolls Royces. So now it gets time to, uh, to leave there. We get on the private jet. We fly into Teterboro airport. Uh, there's a limo at the base of the, the uh, gangway, and um, we get into that. We go across the George Washington Bridge. We go to the, uh, to the brokerage firm. Uh, we, we had a thing set up there where the owner of the brokerage firm was in a meeting, and he was the cousin of the uh, informant that I had who was there. And um, there's some kind of a fagazi argument in his office, and he physically throws this guy out of his office, um, which was all made up stuff. So, you know, and now, now we sit down and, and, um, 
So Roberto, he's talking to Roberto about stuff. And, and I said, what was the problem with that guy? He goes, I don't know, man. Just because my last name ends in a vowel, they all think we're mafia. This is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. So that little passive reinforcement's there. I take him on the, on the floor of the, uh, uh, the exchange. Then we go to lunch at the Columbus Club in Columbus Circle. And you got to be somebody to be a member there. It's a pretty prestigious Italian-American club. So now we take him to the, um, he had an apartment right by the UN and I'm in the limo with a female agent who's posing as my fiance and we get out, he gets, he gets ready to leave and I hold the door and then I get out and I go, Roberto, and, and when we're outside of it, I said, <clears throat> Roberto, number one, don't you ever talk in front of her about business. That's between us. Number two, you've made all these promises about us being partners, but, you know, nothing's really happening here. He goes, well, compadre, you know, it took time, but we are, we are brothers. We are together. We're going to do this. And I said, you're sure? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, if that's the case, if we've reached the point where you're willing to die for me, I'm willing to die for you. My family has a tradition. And I have something for you to bless this relationship. Well, I had been with Alex who, when I asked him, what was it that I could give him? He goes, listen, I'll loan this to your agency. It was a gold, solid gold cross studded with diamonds worth about 25 grand. I had gone to my boss and I said, listen, Alex isn't asking for any payment as a source. He's doing this because he's trying to do the right thing. So here's what I'm proposing. Here's this loan agreement <laughs> for this cross that I've jotted down. But if we lose the cross, it's worth 25 grand. And all I need is, you know, to know that you guys would put him in for 25 grand uh, for his assistance in the case. Like I said before, when I went to customs, there weren't a lot of forms. There weren't a lot of tight, tight rules. And, um, and I got that one. I pushed that envelope right to the edge of the desk and, and it got approved. So now I'm with Roberto and I give him this Paisley box. He opens it up. It's the $25,000 diamond studded cross. Well, he's a, he's a jeweler. He immediately knows what it's worth. He's religious and it's a gift that has meaning for him. Within a week, pickups went from twenty-five to fifty thousand, to two fifty, three fifty, five hundred thousand. Um, we then began to develop what he thought of in his mind as a true. I became some. Some of the guys in the office thought it was like he's thinking of you of the son that he's never had because he had two mm -hmm. daughters, and. Just those types of passive reinforcements um, and many other uh, things that one can do to establish rapport and enhance communication were difference makers um, yeah. in this operation. But try to convince headquarters and whoever's responsible for your undercover operation today that doing some of these things is advisable. That's going to be a very tall order. <laughs> It's easier to get bad guys to launder $100 million in dope or in drug money than it is to get somebody to sign off on the operation. I mean, uh, 
Well, yeah. and it, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not making excuses for anybody here. The thing is, most of those supervisors are making the decisions that have never worked undercover. Yep. And and I mean, it, even in DEA, there's very very few guys that have worked long term undercover like you guys are talking, like you've done, Bob. Yeah, I mean, the undercover school went down into the nitty gritties of everything. You know, if you're going to be working long term undercover, you cannot afford to have cover twenty four seven. There's just no mm-hmm. way that you can do that. So there were a lot of times when I had no cover. Um, I had a contact agent. They knew where I was going, when I was going. They had ways to be able to reach me if they had to. They could call the cell phone. We had codes so they'd know whether things are good or not good. Um, but beyond that fact, I needed to know how to work the recording equipment. I couldn't call a tech in case something's not working right. And I was so concerned about being detected. I don't know if um, uh, there's a guy in Long Island who uh, makes lots of concealed recording equipment. And I went there and I said, you know, I really want to get a briefcase that's going to be state of the art. And it needed to have a thick lid. And I found that a Renwick um, leather briefcase made in Canada had the thickest lid on the top that you could get. So that it would be much more easily concealed and the unit that he put in there, Sal Minerov is the guy's name. But if, if if anybody wants to get um, electronic devices, I mean, he does them for the intelligence community. He does them for law enforcement. He and I built that from stage one. Um, It had some type of a a metal thing around it where, you know, if you had one of those devices that would pick up on the, the, uh, any motor that's running is going to put off something that's detectable. And I don't know all the technical wording for it, but he had an alloy put around it so that it, it wouldn't put those out. Um, wow. Probably nobody was going to find it anyway, but you know, I, I really wanted to make sure that I knew everything about the recording equipment because when it went down, I needed extra parts. I needed to know how to work them. Um, there were a, a number of other types of things uh, that, uh, that you can do. Um, and, and and that's why I really enjoy putting together that uh, that segment on uh, rapport, enhancing rapport and communication, um, because I think that it, it's it's very uh, applicable in, in all walks of life, and and um, and it's it's got use even for corporate execs. Hey, let me ask you a question about that though, Bob, because um, a lot of a lot of guys that we've talked to that work UC. You know, you're doing your job, but at some point you felt a little guilt because when the day comes, when they get arrested, you know, there was this trust that created and you feel even though it's legit, even though you're doing your job legitimately, some guys would say, hey, I still felt bad. I mean, we still we were going to do our job, but I still felt bad because we had developed this relationship. Did you did you have any of those same types of issues or if you didn't, how did you work around it? Because there's two things with UC. One is you got to be careful. You start living the life. Some people never come back to living their original life. They like the life that they've got now, you know, with right. the money and the stuff. And then how do you guard against that uh, feelings of, you know, pity, you know, or I feel sorry for the guy and it starts clouding your judgment? Yeah. I had an advantage. Um, well, yeah, you was... were at the IRS. You had no heart. You had no soul. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't even... it, it's, it's taken me decades to understand, you know, why did I really want to do this? Um, but I, I know what it was. And what it was is just like every idealistic person who goes into law enforcement, my goal was to be a part of making a difference. I never, ever wanted to be in management. I always, always wanted to be as close to the bad guys and, and close to the street 
as I possibly could be. That's the end of part one of our interview with Bob Mazur. Part two will be coming out this Thursday. As always, in the meantime, go visit our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where our book page is. You'll see The Infiltrator and The Betrayal listed there. Bob's books, they are must-reads. Also, go visit us on the socials, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But make sure you also visit us at Patreon dot com slash game of crimes we've got close to 90 pieces of content on there new stuff coming out every week our 911 calls have been fun and the other one is you can't make this shit up some of the funniest stories you're going to hear on the internet from us so make sure you check us out and stay tuned for thursday for part two of our interview with bob mazur 